spring is sprung, the grass is riz. I wonder where the bird is is. They say the bird is on the wing, but that's absurd. The wing is surely on the bird. Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Gardening Podcast. My name's Ellie. I'm Ben. And we're here to talk all things wildlife gardening. And we are going to kick off this week with our sightings in gardens this time. No I've seen reserves. nothing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I did have another Sparrowhawks flyby, which has become a common theme. Another one. Yep. I'm sorry. Um, no, it has slowed down, actually. From two weeks ago, we saw loads of things as the temperatures were starting to rise. And now I am allowed to call it spring. The temperatures have plummeted and we've stopped seeing quite as much wildlife, which is a bit sad. Yeah, it's all been hail and thunderstorms, isn't it? It has a bit turbulent out there. Although actually saying I haven't seen anything, I have been building a pond for a friend and I very excitingly found four frogs and one newt. That is so cool. It's very cool. I actually almost stood on the newt because I was in the process of emptying the old pond, but thankfully managed to put it into safety before it got damaged by my feet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes, I've been extending the pond there and they should be very happy with uh, their, I think it's about four meters long now. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah I, I'm hoping to see a frog in another customer's pond where uh, I just cut a hole in their fence. They've got a, it's fenced all the way around. So I was just looking around the other day and thought, is there actually a way that a frog could get into this garden? And then there wasn't. At the bottom of one of the little um, fence panels, I just cut cut a little hole into it, just big enough. Well, actually, it's big enough for a hedgehog, just in case a hedgehog wants to come in as well. Fingers and, crossed. Yeah, that's 13 centimetres by 13 centimetres, if anybody's interested. Yep. So, so hopefully... about the size of a CD. If you've got a CD case at home put one up against a fence and trace around it and that's the size you need for a hedgehog moving on from our sightings we have a short news section today and it's only me that's bringing news to the table because i think ben's got some podcast news and also what's uh, coming up what's coming up lots of events so my news this week is another rhs report and in the last week the rhs that is the royal horticultural society just in case have released their annual top 10 pests and diseases. I'm just going to talk about the pests today. This is a very exciting chart for gardeners because it it is just a list that they compile based on all the inquiries they receive from the general public over the course of a year. What's causing gardeners bother. Exactly. And you do tend to get the same sort of suspects in the top 10, just in different orders over, over, (laughs) over the years. But yeah, it's a really, really useful list. And you might think it a little strange for us to be focusing on a pest-based article in a wildlife garden podcast. But this list is really important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, not everything that is in the top 10 is actually a native species. And this is something that is, in- is happening increasingly as we keep importing more and varied plants from all around the world. We essentially just bring in new pests on those plants. And then sometimes they can get established and, and get a foothold in our own ecosystem. So on the list in terms of non-native um, is the box tree caterpillar. And that's number three this year, which is really quite high. This is something that absolutely devastates box trees. Once you've got it, it's very hard to get rid of, uh, particularly organically. It was first seen in 2007 and its caterpillars were then found in private gardens in 2011. So it's really not been around that long, but it is really rapidly spread across the country. So it's it's a shame it's such a bugger because it's a beautiful moth. It is. And we have seen it. We have had a problem with box tree moth in one of our gardens. Yeah, so it's... uh... 
Yeah, it's a shame, really. It is. It's, it's, there's nothing, you know, it's not the animal's fault. But no. then at the same time, you know, box, the real box, which is a native plant, actually, is already quite um, scarce in the countryside. And, you know, having uh, some sort of pest that's going to decimate what's left of it really isn't the ideal thing to be importing into the UK. No, exactly. And it's so in terms of the importance of this list and particularly with the non-native pests that are coming in, it's a really, really strong reminder of why we need to buy British. And I know we say this every time we talk about how to get hold of plants, but we're not just being overly patriotic. (laughs) We are doing it because of this reason. It's the the bringing in of new novel pests and diseases to UK shores, which is becoming a really big problem. Yeah, it's not so much of a problem on stuff that's grown, you know, from seed in a greenhouse, you know, in an enclosed environment, but particularly with trees, which are often field grown, grown out in the open somewhere in Italy or elsewhere in the Mediterranean. You know, there's just a a high chance that a pest is going to come on, land on it, lay its eggs, and then it's packaged up and sent over to the UK and the eggs hatch and that's it. There's a new pest in the country. Going back to what I just said about this notion of what is a pest to a wildlife gardener. Now we have said, particularly in the last episode, it's really important that we do get as much biodiversity in our gardens as possible. But some it, things are a pain. Some things are a pain, particularly when their populations are so high that they start to cause a problem. And and we wanted to use this as an opportunity to get across our top three things to do if you think you do have a problem with a particular species in your garden. At number one, Something that we said before is don't panic. If you see something potentially causing damage to a plant in your garden, don't head out there and spray it off at the first sign of any damage. Yeah, just because you see something on a plant doesn't mean it's doing damage. But even if it is, you know, if it's just one small little grub doing a couple of millimetres hole on one leaf on a one plant, you know, it's hardly a disaster, is it? Exactly. And it is really always worth spending a bit of time looking at the thing you've noticed and always, always get a positive ID before you decide to take any action, if that's the route you want, need to, or want to go down. And once you've got a positive ID, you can also delve a little bit deeper. You can maybe look at what its life cycle is. Where is it living in your garden? What does it actually need to be there? And what are its natural predators? That's a really important one now number two is something that a lot of people will probably find quite difficult to do initially and that is to just wait it out and we recommend that you maybe wait about a week or so yeah a week two weeks and that's because there's often a lag in time before the predators of your pest actually come in and find their prey a classic well everybody knows that aphids are often a problem in gardens but aphids are really munched by uh, ladybird larvae and the adult ladybirds as well. But what happens is the aphids come out and they reproduce really, really quickly. And then often gardeners think, oh, no, there's aphids absolutely everywhere, all over my plants. But if you just waited a week or two, then the uh, ladybirds would start to come. They would start to um, be laying their eggs. You'd get the larvae out. And the larvae will then be chomping on the aphids. And all of a sudden, the numbers will go down. But... If you went out with a spray bottle of pesticide as soon as you saw the aphids and you killed all the aphids off, then the ladybirds would have nothing, nothing to, to eat. eat. So, so then there wouldn't be any increase in the ladybird numbers. And then later on in the year, if there's another burst of aphids, there would be no natural predator for them. So it's much better just to see if the the natural predators in your garden 
can get a grip on the problem before you actually take any action yourself. And also, that just means holding your nerve just for a week or two. Yes, unfortunately, I think a lot of people might just head out there with the spray bottle and inadvertently also actually kill the predator's that are already there eating those aphids. Yeah, so exactly. Really important just to know what you're looking at. And the third thing is that if waiting it out really hasn't worked and your plants are on their last legs, then learn about what is the most gentle way you can control that pest. Now, we're organic gardeners for that reason because, generally speaking, organic is the gentlest way of controlling something and looking after something in your garden. So what we tend to do if we do have a problem with something is to head over to the Garden Organic web pages and it is an absolutely wonderful resource full of everything you possibly need to know about how to control certain populations of things organically. And going back to the aphid example, a, a really simple organic way of getting rid of or controlling the populations of aphids if they really are too high is to just head outside Ideally with some gloves on. With gloves, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, probably with gloves. And just squish a few with your fingers. They're really not difficult. just run your hands up the stem of a plant. You know, obviously it's it's difficult if it's a really wafty, soft plant. Or a rose. (laughs) Or, yeah, that's right, yeah. But most, yeah, most plants you can just run your hand up the stem over the aphids and it just squishes them off. It's not very pleasant, but it's a lot better than using a pesticide. Exactly. Um, and something else you can do if you don't want to go down that route, again, if the if the plant is strong enough to stand it, is just to use a hose and get a strong jet of water and just wash them off the plant. And um, most aphids won't, if you jet them off, far enough off the plant, they won't be able to crawl back on it. No, so they're really yeah, teeny tiny. Deal with it. And a lot of them don't have wings. That's uh, that's just one tip and it really is one example. And the Garden Organic pages will... will give you notes to so you can look up some yourself so yeah there you go don't panic wait it out and then organic control are our top three things so you're going to cover some events now there's lots coming up isn't there the diary is pretty full yes i had a look across all of the organizations that we look to for advice and information um, all the different charities and the trusts and lots of them are doing events But the great thing at the moment, of course, is that loads of people are doing things online and I put them all into a Google calendar. So this will be on the page on our website with all the show notes. And in just the next month, I found over 50 events. That's a busy month. Um, Are they all free? Or is it no, a it's a mixture. You just have to click on the links. There's links to all of them in the calendar. This is probably the best time ever to hear from as many experts in the field as you can. Um, but just a couple to look out for. There's some really interesting ones that we'll probably be um, going to online. So so some of you might have heard of Joel Ashton, who is one of the Butterfly Brothers. They've got a brilliant YouTube channel, great wildlife gardener, also just released a book. So he's doing a an evening talk that's uh, this Thursday, actually. By the time you listen to this, you've got a day and a half to go ahead and book that. It's for the Worcestershire Wildlife Trust and it's just called Wildlife Gardening with Joel Ashton. Another talk is by Dr. Kim Wilkie and again it's online but this is by the Gardens Trust um, who do loads of um, talks on the history of gardening, different stuff like that. And this is all about how wildness, uh, the concepts of wildness have changed relative to gardening over centuries. Really. That sounds really interesting. We yeah. should go to that. Yeah, it's, that's Monday 22nd, 6 to 7 p.m. Another is called Wilder Churches. So this is an event being run to encourage people to think about churchyards and all the different things that you can do in them. 
we were actually pointed on to how important they can be um, because we went to the AGM of the Amphibian and Reptile Groups UK and somebody was doing a talk there about how they were surveying... Slow worms, wasn't it? Yeah, they were putting transects down for slow worms and other reptiles as well, weren't they? So yeah, churchyards can be absolutely fantastic for wildlife. Well, they're great because they, especially the older ones, don't tend to have huge human footfall. So they're really relatively undisturbed and not necessarily wild, but certainly undisturbed areas, which is really good for things like slow worms. Yeah, so if you've got a, a church nearby um, or you're a member of the church yourself, you know, and you want to do something more interesting with the church grounds, then have a look on the calendar, join the event and see what else you can do. There's loads more talks on pollinator friendly gardening, tackling the roots of plant blindness, loads of general ones on wildlife gardening. So, yeah, just have a look at the calendar and get to as many as you can. Well, that's a lot for you all to put in your diaries, which leaves me to move on to this week's topic, which is the book club. Now, we told you a month ago that we would be reading Wildlife Gardening for Everyone and Everything by Kate Bradbury. It's both easy to read, but also really full of facts and doesn't actually shy away from the details. So you really come away feeling like you have learned something. And equally, it's both readable in one go, as we've both done, or you can actually keep it as a reference book because it actually contains a lot of blueprints for how to physically do things for wildlife in your garden. Yeah, and when we say it's a good reference book, normally when you think of a reference book, you've got in mind, you know, a 2,000 page tome that just sits there never being opened. But it's quite a slim book, isn't it? It's only a couple of hundred pages. What I also really like about this book is that Kate doesn't shy away from the bad news and we mentioned this in episode one of our podcast about the huge declines in lots and lots of different species particularly insects in the UK and it is unfortunately quite a depressing picture. She manages to get that message across but also to keep the reader feeling quite positive about the things you can do in your garden which is kind of how we want to come across as well in this podcast isn't it? And one of the things that sticks in my mind is that she mentions that the life cycles of a lot of insects that are spoken about in the book, and including our important pollinators, are really short. So actually, the actions that we take as gardeners to encourage them really does have the potential to increase their numbers as fast as they've dropped. The scientists are saying, you know, we just need to make a few changes and then they could shoot right back up again really quick as well. Just reverse it. Yep. So we mentioned this book in the last podcast because we were talking specifically about what is wildlife gardening. And the first section of this book is literally that, what is wildlife gardening? And we really like Kate's quite succinct way of getting across that it's all about food, water and shelter. Those are the three main principles when you're trying to create a wildlife friendly garden. She also says that it's synonymous with habitat gardening, which it is. You're basically trying to create as much habitat and as much diversity of habitat in your garden as possible. So in terms of those three principles, she then, in the introduction, gives a really good overview of each of them in a really helpful but quite general way. And if you're new to wildlife gardening, it's actually quite a nice way of easing you into sort of changing the way you view your garden, I think. And one message that she also gets across is that it is really down to what you can do in your garden. I think we said this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about what is wildlife gardening. Not everyone has two acres to create every single possible feature of what you'd expect to find in a wildlife garden. Some and people lots just, of people rent as well. Loads of people. We rent. Yeah, we yep. rent. We, <laughs> well, 
There's Let's some... not talk about our garden in this episode. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> we've probably done more to our garden than you should do to a rented garden. But, you know, obviously lots of people just don't have the choice of what they can do. So, But there's always something you can do, even yeah. if you're renting. Yeah, and in terms of water provision, just as an example, Kate describes how you can provide water in any size garden. So she runs through the fact that you could start off with a bird bath if you do just have a balcony, uh, through to a container pond, right up to a large pond. But also you could just have a bog garden, particularly if you've got really small children. That's actually quite a good solution. Um, yeah, bog gardens are great. All you have to do is put a bit of... Um, you just dig out a bit of soil, put a bit of pond liner under the soil, puncture a load of holes in it, put the soil back over the top. And it just means the water doesn't drain as quickly so if you've got a light soil but you want to grow some things that like a bit more of a moist soil that's a really good idea and then you can just plant different things over the top of it exactly now in terms of food she talks about the idea of thinking about berries and the really the food that is visible to us humans but also the importance of providing nectar and pollen which obviously people are becoming more aware of but i think it's just a really really good message to get across to as many new gardeners as possible and then in terms of shelter, the main message really is to provide as much variety of shelter to attract in a bigger variety of wildlife as is actually possible. I mean, this does include very many common garden features that I think without thinking in terms of a wildlife gardener, you might not necessarily even think of as being shelter. Some some more obvious than others, but she gives the examples of a hedge. So you might not want to be cutting it as often. So she talks a little bit about the management of that hedge in terms of benefiting wildlife. It's, she talks about compost heaps being fantastic shelter for animals as well. This is something that I didn't realise when I first started even wildlife gardening. I mean, it's really obvious because you see loads of critters and all the insect life in your compost heap, but things like slow worms really love compost heaps. And she talks about the best time of the year for turning your compost heap so as not to disturb anything that's been overwintering in it is April. She talks about decomposing plants and the importance of leaving those brown stems over winter, which is what we talked about last time. Decay in your garden is not always a foe and it's something that we should all learn to embrace and can look really beautiful. Still on the shelter, she talks about long grass and meadows. So this is just another example. You could just not mow a patch of your, your lawn as often or leave it for an entire summer if you dare. And that's a really good refuge for lots of different creatures. And what I really liked is that she suggested that the pot collection that gathers lots of cobwebs behind your shed, which I think every garden possibly has, is also a really important habitat for those spiders, obviously, and various other creatures. That is so true. Yeah, that is, it's brilliant for spiders and all sorts of other invertebrates. And it's also zero work, you know, just leave your pots behind the shed and you've done the job. Brilliant. Exactly. So that covers the the general introduction, I guess, part of this book, which is really, really useful, both for the new wildlife gardener and also an old hand wildlife gardener. And after that general introduction, she actually breaks the book down in terms of how to garden for specific broad groups of wildlife and even includes an identification parade is what she calls it of some of the species within each group that you might find in your garden which I mean is just absolutely wonderful because I think most people would would 
take one look at, you know, the insects of UK general insect book and be really intimidated by the thousands of insects, whereas this is just a, a sort of potted history of what you're likely to find. And yeah, it's condensed because it's the stuff you're most likely to find in your garden, which is great. Yeah, and according to each broad group of types of wildlife, she includes a table of the specific things you can do for that group according to whether you have a small, medium or large garden allotment or even a balcony or patio. So I would say even if you just read the book for those tables alone, and it really is just a case of a list of things you can do and a tick or a cross next to that type of garden as to whether or not it's possible to do in your garden, it's just incredibly useful. So as well as recommending this book to all of you who are listening, we wanted to just give some top tips about how to attract certain things into your garden. So firstly, Kate talks about pollinators. Now this is a group that I think most people are really aware of. The RHS has got their plants for pollinators project and there's labels everywhere saying what what type of flowers you should be putting in your garden to attract these pollinators. And this is including bees, butterflies and moths and also the wasps. And something that we can all do in our gardens is to put up a bee hotel. Now if you're listening to this the chances are you probably already have heard about a bee hotel and indeed they've really become quite popular in the last few years and lots of our clients have bee hotels in their garden and the reason why they seem to have sprung up from nowhere is because it's actually only really relatively recently that we've really learned about the nesting habits of the solitary bees that these bee hotels are trying to attract and that's things like the red mason bee which is a really fantastic bee that's excellent at pollinating our fruit trees This book's really good because Kate goes through step by step what to look out for in terms of what not to buy and also what to look out for in terms of the best practice for either buying or if you're feeling really adventurous for making your own bee hotel. And what I also really like is as well as teaching us how to make our own bee hotel, she also gives tips on how to maintain it. And she does that based on whether you're a beginner, an intermediate, or whether you consider yourself an expert in terms of maintaining this bee hotel. So this is one of the best devices of the book, I would say, her splitting it into three, because you can, you know, sometimes it can be overwhelming to, to learn everything that there is to know about this stuff all in one go. And you know, if somebody bombards you with absolutely everything, it might be a bit off putting. So having just the what is still good advice, Um, but a slightly simplified version uh, is great because you can read that you can do that bit first and then if you want to know more you can go back and learn more later. It actually spurred me to do a bit more research about the red mason bee and I found a really fantastic website which had a lot of videos as well and it's quite similar to the advice that Kate gives so I'll I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. So after looking at pollinators and how to do loads of different things to attract pollinators into your garden as well as putting up bee hotels Kate also talks about the beetles and I'm just going to give one beetle that I learned about in this section from the identity parade and that is the red soldier beetle I've seen them before and I just didn't know that's what they were called they're about one centimeter long they're red it's a very distinctive beetle but it's also known as the bonking beetle (laughs) for the reason that (laughs) why it's a bit I don't want to say promiscuous but you never see it without a mate it's just always at it um it's actually also another thing that he eats aphids in the garden and that tends to love visiting umbiliferous flowers such if it as, has time between well, its other activities exactly well it needs the energy doesn't it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um 
After Beatles comes The True Flies. And I love the fact that the book includes True Flies because I think that apart from Hoverflies, which are included in this group, it's something that is really overlooked in the garden. And loads of our, I think most people do think they're a bit disgusting, but loads of our flies really are fantastic pollinators. So attracting them into your garden is something to really consider. And it I would also say that a lot of flies also aid the decomposition process. And without them, we might all be up to our eyeballs in feces and rotting vegetative matter. (laughs) So go flies and please do read the book for all the various tips on how to include it. Don't just gloss over it. Um, But in terms of the hoverfly, now hoverflies are absolutely brilliant flies to have in your garden yeah they're pollinators and they're voracious predators as well they're voracious predators of those aphids and other things and we talked a couple of weeks ago about our horrible mistake in thinking that the rat-tailed maggot which is actually the larvae of a type of hoverfly was a pest it isn't a pest and in this book there is actually a design for a hoverfly lagoon and we've not created one of these. I think we should do this this year to attract the drone fly, which has this rat-tailed maggot as its larval stage. You can cut the bottom off a big plastic bottle, like a six-pint milk bottle, and you stuff a load of grass clippings in, pour a load of water in, put some leaf mold on top, which tends to float and give something for hoverflies to land on, and then stick a few sticks into it so that they're sort of protruding from above the bottle and in the water and that gives the emerging hoverfly something to crawl up when they're ready and you just leave it in a warm spot in your garden and keep monitoring it over the summer make sure the water levels are topped up if necessary just so it does so that it doesn't entirely dry out and yeah you've then created a habitat for that hoverfly to breed in your garden which is really wonderful So that's just a really good example, again, of a step-by-step process thing that all of us could do in our gardens. And I mean, as well as things like that, she does also go into the plant side of things, obviously, because lots of insects need plants. So for something like the hoverfly, they tend to really like composite flowers. And that just means flowers that are made up of lots and lots of tiny, little, simple flowers. So things like the Verbena bonariensis, which is something that is really common, widespread across the UK now. Loads of people grow it in their gardens. Hoverflies love it. And yeah, so and it also looks really good for us. After the true flies, we then get a bit of an overview of the true bugs. Yeah, so this is a bit sciencey. There's different classifications. So anything that is contained within this group, the Hemiptera, is considered a true bug. And that includes your aphids, your pond skaters and your shield bugs. So it's really wide and varied, as well as lots of other things. And another defining feature of this group, this is something that I learned is that is that the insects in this group always undergo incomplete metamorphosis. So this is where the young of the insects, which are also called nymphs, actually look like and have similar habits to the adults, as opposed to something like, for example, the butterflies, which undergo complete metamorphosis, where the young, which is obviously the caterpillars, look nothing like their, their adult phase, which is obviously the butterflies and the ma- moths. That's interesting. I had no, I didn't know that's... That was the uh, the sort of defining feature of no, the true bugs. Exactly. This is why this book is so good. Or rather, I did actually read that book, so <laughs> I probably did know it once, but I've since forgotten it. So <laughs> why you should always keep it on your shelf? <laughs> yeah. There's also a whole section on birds, um, which obviously a really good and beautiful part of any wildlife garden. 
And Kate goes into loads of detail about the different plants that you can put in your garden that can act both as shelter and food for birds. I'm not going to go into loads of detail about that now, though, because we've actually done a couple of episodes on our feathered friends. And you can go back and listen to those if you like. Yep, episodes two and three. Go back and uh, have a listen on nest boxes and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And... One that's close to my heart after the bird section is that of amphibians and reptiles. And these guys are just so, so good in your wildlife garden because they really are little pest controllers of the, in their own right. And you don't even need a pond for the three obvious groups, which is your toads, frogs and newts. Because quite often they only really mate in those ponds and they then, once they finish doing their mating, they then go out into lots of different nooks and crannies in your garden. That's right. They spend most of their life in sheltered, damp uh, hidey holes. Which is why in the book there's a really good step-by-step guide on how to build a hibernaculum. Now, a hibernaculum, or you could call it a refugium, is just an area in your garden that you specifically set aside and turn into this really wonderful place for things like newts and toads and frogs to hide out on hot summer's day because they don't want to sit in the in the hot sun and dry out. And the way you do that is in a sunny site, just so that it stays warm, you dig a hole, you then fill that hole with logs, twigs, rocks and bricks, anything that will create loads of different sort of crevices and lots of different holes. And then you insert entrance tubes into those nooks and crannies. And then you backfill all of that stuff with soil to about 50 centimetres high. So on the outside, it looks like a mound. Now to decorate that mound you can plant turf and or wildflowers so that it doesn't just look like a mound of soil in your garden and that would just be a wonderful place for those frogs and toads to hang out and she actually mentions it's a really good idea to have one of these in your garden particularly if you have cats in the vicinity because cats quite often predate those amphibians and this is just somewhere for them to hide away from them yeah that's a brilliant tip And last but not least, there is also a section on mammals that you can attract to your garden. And that's the small mammals in particular, like mice, voles and shrews, among some other contenders. And also bats, which are a really important species to have, particularly if you want to be controlling mosquitoes in your garden. Yeah, and you don't even, well, you can encourage bats to roost, but even just something like night-scented plants that's going to encourage the moths in provides the food for the bats. So, you know, there's all sorts of stuff you can do to just have bats flying around your garden in the evening. It's just amazing. So I do feel like I've raced through some of those groups, but that's because it, despite being quite a short book, it is absolutely jam-packed full of information. Yeah, it's only 170 pages. And like Ellie said, it's got all the ID parades, which has got loads of information, including the life cycles about the stuff um, that she's talking about, including some really good photos, actually, mm. um, which are really handy for, for easily identifying what you're looking at. Yeah, so it is just a really, really great book that we hope all of you are inspired to go out and buy. Yeah, thank you, Kate, if you're listening. <laughs> okay, right, on to the native plant of the week. And this is the first plant that some people might be considering a weed. And we'll come on to whether you want to grow it in your garden later. But I think it's a beautiful plant. And then this is the lesser celandine. 
So if you've got it, it will be flowering in your gardens right now. But if not, I'll just give you a brief description of what it looks like. It's a small flower. It's only about 20 centimetres tall, something like that. That's the absolute maximum. But it's kind of got a buttercup flower. So it's a bit more sort of starry shaped, um, but it's really rich buttercup yellow. It is so yellow in the sun. I think absolutely just brights up any sort of under a hedgerows you quite often find it don't you that's right yeah really really lovely plant yep it's stunning and the fact that it's buttercup yellow makes sense because it's in the ranunculaceae and this is a family that includes all the buttercups now the latin name for lesson celandine is ficaria verna and I don't actually know if I'm saying that right. I've never heard anybody say that. Yeah, so we're always learning. So we'll see if Ficaria, Ficaria, Verna, I don't know. Why doesn't somebody ring in and tell us what the right way to pronounce it is? Um, but it's one of those plants that constantly changes its name. So originally it was Ficaria Verna, and this was a name given it to it by a 16th century botanist called Otto Brunfels. But then the name was changed to ranunculus ficaria so ranunculus like i say is the buttercup genus but then in 2010 after a bit of extra botanical work and some genetic work on the flower it was turned back into ficaria verna so if you're looking for information on this and or if you're looking to buy it you might see it labeled either as ficaria verna or as ranunculus ficaria so we're going to use its current name and the name Ficaria means little figs. And I'm sure that must have something to do with the way the roots look, which we'll talk about in a minute. And Verna uh, means offspring. So if you ever see a plant that's called Verna, Vernum, Vernus, something like that, then it's generally telling you that it's a spring flower. And again, this makes sense because lesser celandine is what is called a pre-vernal species. And a pre-vernal species is just something that comes out before spring but really in this case what it's talking about is the sort of flowers that come out before all the leaves come out on the trees so that's species that do all of their business before the tree cover closes in and actually february the 21st was previously coined as celandine day by the naturalist uh, gilbert white because that's when he noticed the celandines first flowering and actually that's pretty close to where they still flower in the south of the country up here in nottingham they flower a bit later and they'll flower later still the further north you go in the country now, another of the common names was pilewort. Lovely. Mm. And this is because the roots resemble piles, which is a Just, fantastic <laughs> description of I, them. I wouldn't know. But this is part of what is called the doctrine of signatures. And this is a, uh, well, it's sort of a catch-all term for basically the way people used to describe what they perceived to be the medical uses of plants based on what they look like. So you have things like uh, pilewort, this celandine, was supposed to be good for piles if you took it as a medicine or as a herbal remedy and other things like lungwort which is the pulmonaria they were supposed to be good for lung complaints and different things as well i think we should just add that you shouldn't take lesser celandine if you do have piles and that the doctrine of signatures is a very old thing yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah there's probably better things to take and actually we'll go on to some of the other things um celandine has been used for and it has some not necessarily pleasant effects but yeah moving on swiftly one of the things that came um, often in association with the doctrine of signatures was that herbal plants which sprang up around sanctified grounds like churchyards were regarded as especially powerful so lots of people use celandine for that reason because it's often found in churchyards and finally just on the background it was actually one of wordsworth the poet's favorite plants 
Um, so he actually wrote three poems about it. And in a little bit of botanical, uh, a little botanical side note, when he wrote the poems, he wrote that um, it is remarkable that this flower coming out so early in spring as it does, and so bright and beautiful, and in such profusion, should not have been noticed earlier in English verse. Oh, well, yeah. nice. It's also Chris Packham's favourite flower, just Ooh, as an aside. Good. Is he a yeah. good poet as well? I'm sure he is. He's good at most things, isn't he? Well, he can read most lines of the damned, can't he, off, I off think the top he of can. his head. Yep. <laughs> so, so to give you a bit of the um, detail about how the plant grows, it is a perennial plant. The stems grow to about 20 centimetres tall, something like that. But in most of uh, the UK, it flowers somewhere between February and May. It's got a pretty starry yellow flower, normally about eight petals. And like Ellie said, it's got a, a beautiful sort of bright lemon yellow flower, but it's glossy and shining on the inside. It really does rival things like the winter aconite, I think, in terms of how beautiful it looks at this time of year. Oh yeah, absolutely. The number of stamens and carpels, so these are the, the sexual parts of the plant, vary from about 5 to 72, which is <laughs> huge. a huge <laughs> divergence. And we'll come on to this uh, in a moment. But a lot of the um, variability is because there's a lot of different subspecies. And most of the British plants belong to the subspecies uh, Fertilis, Verna and formis. I'm also, I'm not clear if some of those subspecies names have changed while the the main genus name has changed as well so um so yeah you might find uh especially the cultivated forms is labeled as all sorts of things it's just a big mess basically at the moment now the lesser celandine is distributed across the british isles but it's also found in europe so it's found up to southern norway and finland um southeast across europe all the way to the black sea and then as far south as sicily spain and portugal as well in britain it can grow to about 730 meters above sea level i think that's uh, the highest record in britain is somewhere in wales but it's it recorded in europe over 1600 meters uh in in what is considered sort of the foothills of the alps but of course that's way bigger than anything we've got in the uk in terms of the subspecies the the diploid one tends to be associated with old undisturbed deciduous woodlands and permanent pasture uh, where the tetraploid is associated with disturbed ground frequently as a garden weed so some of the cultivated ones are these tetraploid and one of the things you know and why it's considered a weed is because it, it if you disturb it if you dig around it, it very easily spreads the roots around so it can come very easily from disturbance but all the subspecies frequently occur on soils which are seasonally wet or flooded, especially in the winter. Um, and they're all generally absent from permanently dry or permanently waterlogged sites. So, you know, it's very variable, but it just can't take permanent wet and permanent dry. In woodland, it's been recorded with a pH of uh, slightly acid, 6.5 to alkaline, 7.9. But actually, it's been found in uh, more acidic soil in Britain down as low as 4.4. But one of the most interesting things about this is that the yellow of the petals is so vivid thanks to a unique type of pigment and the presence of a layer of white starch grains actually inside the petal. So lots of plants obviously have starch in their tissues and it's how we get sugars from uh, from the plants that we eat. But it's quite unusual for a flower to actually have starch in the petal. The starch is confined to a layer of tissue below the upper layer of the petal. And these cells, because they're... Um, because of their structure actually add to the opacity of that yellow color so you know if you think of a lot of flowers you'll you can sort of see through the petal in good light but having this layer of starch behind the pigment layer means that uh that yeah the yellow is much deeper 
And uh, actually, in one paper, they said that the uh, the way these starch grains are uh, are put all together inside the petal is like a style of a uh, crazy pavement. <laughs> oh, nice. The pigment that they use is a yellow carotene pigment. But again, the interesting thing is not actually as a solid. It's uh, in an oily solution, which helps sort of contribute to that glossiness. I think its shininess is really one of the most beautiful parts of this plant. We actually drove past a stand of lesser celandine under a hedgerow, just along a road. I, th- I think Ben was driving, so you probably didn't notice it, Ben. But it just absolutely lit up and reflected the sun as well as that deep yellow yeah it's radiant isn't it it's just absolutely glorious but all of this glossiness this shininess is for a reason and that is to attract insects in so now we are going to talk about what you all want to know of course which is the sexual antics of the lesson celandine okay so the flowers are about two to three centimeters in diameter and there's one flower on the end of each stem that they have and these flowers are hermaphrodite which as we know have both the male and female parts contained within one flower the pollen and the nectar are accessible to short-tongued insects and the nectar is secreted within a small scale at the base of each petal so it's attractive to bees to small beetles and to flies as well which are the uh, the vectors the agents of pollination and the type of plant you're looking at determines how viable the pollen is. So the pollen is viable in diploids, only partially viable in tetraploids, but not generally in triploids. What the hell are they, Ben? Yeah, so if you've got no idea what I'm talking about now, then I better give you a, a quick bit of background. So most plants have two sets of chromosomes. So that's a diploid. If it's got four sets of chromosomes, it's a tetraploid. And if it's got three... It's a triploid. And depending on the number of chromosomes that a plant has, it will affect all sorts of different characteristics of the flower. And we're not going to go into loads of background detail here, but generally triploids aren't fertile and that will mean it won't have viable pollen. And of course, if you don't have viable pollen, you're not likely to have viable seed. If pollinated, only a proportion of tetrapoid plants, which have four sets of chromosomes, actually ripen and produce good seed whereas in diploids the the normal plant with two sets of chromosomes if they're well pollinated you get lots and lots of seed from them but lesser celandine don't only need to come from seed because they have this ability to produce um, vegetatively by producing bulbils in the axle which is the gap between the main stem and where relief comes off at the side that's the axle in there can develop what's called a corline auxiliary tubercule Ooh, yeah. that sounds fun. <laughs> we just call these bulbils i've never heard it called that apart from in this paper but anyway so in that gap between the stem and the leaf you get uh, this bulbil and it's and it's like a little root packaged up that will fall off go into the soil and it will turn into a proper root it will send roots down and it will turn into the normal sw- little swollen um, bit that looks like the pile that gives it the pile work name lesser celandine is so successful at producing vegetatively that in one study only 10 plants produced a total of 241 bulbils between them and as the plant dies down these bulbils again in these just gaps by the stem just fall off fall onto the ground and it's been described as like potato rain because they look like tiny potatoes just a few millimeters across 
I can certainly vouch for this because in one of our gardens, we were sort of, we, we sort of started on a bit of a celandine battle before we knew any better. But we thought, we'll thin these things out. It doesn't work. So I would always say, if you have them, you're actually really lucky because they're so beautiful. But if you feel the need to try and control them, it probably will take you the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) So I think you probably have better things to spend your time doing. Potato rain is not one of them. (laughs) No. Now, while we've described, if you've got them, you're really lucky because they are absolutely beautiful. How good are they for wildlife? Now, first of all, we should say that celandine actually doesn't like to be chomped by everything and so it's produced a chemical defense mechanism it produces a a chemical called ranunculin as in ranunculus and this ranunculin is uh, in the plant tissues so when the plant is damaged different enzymes in the plant break this ranunculin down into glucose into sugar and into a toxin called protoanemonin Again, I'm probably pronouncing that terribly, but protoanemonin can actually cause skin blisters. And although it has been used medically, it was also been recorded as being used by medieval beggars to mimic skin burns. Oh, yeah. There's, there's an idea for putting a sickie at work, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Again, also, don't do this. <laughs> no, well, this is exactly why you don't want to be rubbing it on the sensitive parts that might have piles. Yes, of course. Wow. I wonder how many people learned that the hard way. I don't don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. So while it does produce um, these uh, defense mechanisms, some caterpillars do eat it. And the caterpillar of just a brilliantly named moth, the flame brocade moth, eats it. But like lots of flowers, it's attractive to many different species, all going for that sweet nectar and for the pollen. So that some solitary bees like the common furrow bee go for it, lots of different hoverflies, um, bumblebees like the early and buff-tailed, but also some butterflies like the peacock butterfly has been recorded feeding from celandine flowers. So it's yet another plant that we can have in our gardens and encourage for that early hit of nectar for those exactly. creatures that are just waking up. Yeah, especially if it's if you're in a part of the country where it is flowering in February. So if you do want to grow it in your garden, like I said, it's tolerant of most soils. It doesn't mind the pH. It doesn't care about being shaded by deciduous trees because it's done all its business by the time the leaves of the trees come out. So um, yeah, don't worry about planting it under um, deciduous trees. And in fact, that's a great place to put it because that's where a lot of it will grow in nature. It won't grow, like I've said, in completely waterlogged soil or completely dry sites. So if you're on a already sandy soil that doesn't get any rain over the autumn and winter, which, you know, does actually happen in the UK, especially if you're in some parts of the southeast, um, then maybe give it a miss. But like I said, it's one of those plants. It's the closest we've got to what some people consider a weed, or at least that we've covered so far. And this is just because once you've got it, you've got it. It can come from uh, the roots, it can come from seed, and it can come from these bulbils. So it reproduces very readily. Now, in most border situations, this is not a problem because it's only actually up, you know, what, about three months of the year, something Mm, like that. So although it comes up and it makes a big carpet of flowers, it actually then dies down by the time most of your herbaceous plants are up. It really depends on whether you are the sort of person who really, really wants to see bare soil, or if you'd just rather see something there in the meantime before the rest of your plants grow up. And like we've said before, in a wildlife garden, if you have bare soil, why not have the celandine instead? 
you know, because then at least you've got something flowering in February. But if you're trying to grow swathes of things like cyclamen or maybe snowdrops, other things like that, and you just want the cyclamen or the snowdrop, then maybe don't go for the celandine as well because it's very easy for it to, to seed in amongst those other plants and then you've got a bit of a job weeding it out of there. If you do have space for it though, you can buy one of the normal native subspecies from wildflower seed suppliers. You can get it as seed or you can buy it as plug. So these are just small potted plants ready to go in your garden. If you're happy for them to self-seed, then you can just put a few in and allow them to do the rest of the work. It takes a little longer, but it's free gardening really at the end of the day. You can, of course, though, collect the seed from the wild. It's absolutely, totally legal to collect seed from the wild. You're not allowed to go and collect plants and you are supposed to seek owner's permission from the land but if it's on common land you know it's growing there then you can just go along when the seed's ripe um, and I would collect it and sow it straight away into pots but it's another one of those plants that needs a winter cold to germinate so probably the best thing is just to sow it into some pots and leave the pots outside you know just leave them somewhere they're not going to get in the way and don't expect germination until it's had some cold winter weather the following winter Um, and also don't forget about them and let them completely dry out Yes, that's a good point. Over Very that good summer. point. Um, you know, if it's if you're in a part of the country that's getting a good amount of rain, then they might be fine. But if you're tucking them out of the way in the rain shadow of a building or something, then it is easy for pots to completely dry out. So while it's very easy to grow the wild plant, there are actually some cultivated varieties. And one of our customers has actually got one. We didn't know what she was talking about to begin with because she kept going on about this brazen hussy in her borders. <laughs> but there is, there is a celandine variety called brazen hussy. I want to have that just for the name in our garden. <laughs> yeah, this is... Um, it's it's really nice one actually it's got a what it's sort of like a deep purple leaf isn't it yeah which makes the yellow stand out even more um there's some others with different color flowers there's one called orange sorbet which naturally has a more orange color flower and one called randall's white which does have a white flower and i don't suppose there's any reason why you couldn't grow a mixture of them all in together no lovely thank you very much that was really good i think that's it for this week it is if you want to get in touch with us, we'll give you all the details like usual. On Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash the Wildlife Garden Podcast. On Twitter, we are at the Wild GDN. And you can just email us. Our address is thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. And as usual, all the notes from various things we've natted on about in this episode are found on our website, which is elliswellies.com. And we'll put a link to the page with the show notes under the podcast. I suppose all we've got to say until next time now is goodbye. Bye. Bye.